You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Welcome back. This is Mining Stock Education, and I am Bill Powers. Thank you for tuning in. If you'd like to engage the show, feel free to reach me at bill at miningstockeducation.com. On today's show, we are going to be hearing uh, from fund manager Matt Geiger of MJG Capital. Website is mjgcapital.com. And Matt put out in the last couple weeks his recap of his 2019 performance for the fund. And uh, I'm happy to tell you, the listener, that Matt was successful. Uh, almost 76% gain on the one-year performance. And Matt, uh, relative to most fund managers in this sector is quite young, but he's been at this eight and a half years. So I really um, admire him for his entrepreneurial ambition uh, in starting the fund and also for the insights that he offers. So Matt, welcome back onto the show. I appreciate you joining me. And uh, what are your personal thoughts about your performance last year? And how do you think you're going to manage the fund in 2020? Well, thanks for having me back on the show, Bill. Um, indeed, 2019 was was a very strong year for us. Um, as you mentioned, we were up roughly 76% over the, the course of the year. This technically wasn't our best year since inception, uh, at least in absolute terms. Uh, that, that distinction belongs to 2016, um, where the fund was up uh, 95%. And you can probably remember that uh, euphoric nine months as we came off the, the bottom of the you know, 2011 through 2015 bear market um, with, with a bang in, in 2016. Um, however, I was pleased with the relative performance uh, this year because in, in 2016, it seemed like almost anything was up if it had to do with the mining space. And the TSXV was up 45% in that year. Whereas just last year in 2019, uh, the TSXV was up a modest uh, 4%. So the, the, the gulf in, in relative performance was much stronger last year. Um, so yeah, I, I was pleased to, to report those results in, in the most recent investor letter, um, which as you mentioned is, is available on the fund's um, website. Um, I would say that uh, another key point here is that the fund has now outperformed uh, both the TSXV and the S&P 500 over uh, six-month, one-year, three-year, and five-year time horizons. Um, and that's the first time I've been able to, to report that since inception. So that, that is positive. I think we have uh, the wind at our, our, our back um, for the first time in a while. Um, this, this performance in 2019 was largely driven. Um, by our gold and silver focused uh, investments. Um, as you know, one, one name that I've talked about quite a bit publicly is Adriatic Metals. That was another, um, that, was, that was a strong component of our performance. And I consider that a silver focused play. It's really polymetallic and uh, the total revenue from each of the, the company's metals um, is pretty spread out evenly, but I, I classify that as a silver focused. Um, the, our, our precious metal exposure now sits at around 50% of our, our weighted portfolio. Um, and I'm happy with this weighting, but, but don't want to see it go uh, much higher. Um, and and as, I, as I note in the letter, I'm going to spend the coming months here um, fortifying some of our higher quality uh, base and energy metal positions, you know, focused on metals like copper and, and nickel and, and uranium, um, while also uh, hopefully slimming down the, the portfolio a bit. We're we're at 25 names, which is within the range of the number of positions that I'd like to have, um, but I'd rather get it into the 15 to, to, to 20 company range uh, if possible. So those will be my goals over the coming um, few months here 
before I report mid-year results in July. Do you expect to have your gold and silver equities outperform in 2020, or are you looking to a different commodity to kind of lead the way in in your uh, positions? Well, at at the end of the day, we're bottom-up investors, and so I try not to get too sucked into market predictions. This is is a very volatile, very difficult industry. Um, Things change, change quickly. If I had to guess, I think we'll probably see more of the same this year where uh, gold and, and silver um, investments outperform where, while there's headwinds um, on the base and energy metal space, you know, due to a continually strengthening U.S. dollar and then, you know, economic uh, slowness out of China um, due to the coronavirus outbreak. That will at least have a quarter or two impact. Certainly don't think that's the end of the world of a, of a long term time horizon as an investor. So that's that's not affecting any of our investment decisions in any way. Um, but, I, but I also feel there is the chance for an upside surprise this year as well with the base and energy metals. Um, sentiment is, is extremely negative right now. Um, and, and there's a chance that uh, a stimulus out of uh, China in particular, but also out of emerging markets generally, um, could, could push actually the base and energy metals higher this year to people's expectations. So uh, hoping for the best, but, but not expecting it. Um, I think they're great places to be over the next three to five years, so so we're going to hang tight. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Osino Resources is a Ross Beattie-backed gold exploration company in mining-friendly Namibia. Osino's district-scale land package is situated near two producing gold mines, one of which Osino's management team previously developed and sold to B2 Gold. Osino's founders and management are experienced mining professionals who have already successfully developed and sold two companies in the past seven years. Osino has a tight share structure, and with its current treasury, it can self-fund the advancement of its gold discovery into at least 20 2022. This is an exploration company with drills turning that you'll definitely want to pay attention to. Osino trades in New York under the ticker O-S-I-I-F and in Toronto under the ticker O-S-I. To learn more, go to OsinoResources.com. That's OsinoResources.com. You shared your commentary on what's going on in the gold sector with the royalty companies under market musings in your letter. Can you uh, give us an overview of what were some of the key points that you talked about there and what kind of investment opportunities does that create for the investors listening to us? Certainly. So yeah, I think the rise of the royalty business model over the past 10 to 20 years uh, is really the elephant in the room um, in the mining industry and something that uh, most operators uh, don't like to talk about. But it really has revolutionized uh, the industry. Um, you know, investors love this business model for, for a handful of reasons. And I, I kind of run through these in the um, piece in the letter. Um, a few of these are that uh, by buying a single royalty company, you can become incredibly diversified. You know, the, the Franco Nevadas of the world have uh, – over 100, um, to my knowledge, cash flowing royalties, as well as a uh, large basket of soon-to-be cash flowing royalties. So you get exposure to multiple jurisdictions, multiple different deposit types, you know, multiple operators, and you can really hedge your bet by just buying one or two royalty companies. Um, another uh, reason investors like it is due to the extremely high margins um, in the business. Um, you know, it's famously said that Franco Nevada owns uh, earns roughly three and a half million. Um, or generates roughly three and a half million in revenue per employee um, per year, and, and this puts the likes of Google or Goldman Sachs to, to absolute shame. So extremely profitable business. Um, another is the, the scalability of the business. Um, as these royalty companies grow, as they accumulate more and more royalties, um, their cost of capital gets lower, um, while at the same time 
um, they're they're open to to larger um, and potentially better opportunities w- within the space. So scalability is is not an issue. And even the, even Franco Nevada, the largest royalty company right now, continues to to grow at a pretty rapid clip. Um, uh, then there's the limited uh, operational risk, which is a which is a huge part of it. You know, as as a royalty company, you own a percentage of uh, revenue that's that's produced from the mine. So any unexpected uh, sustaining capex ex- expenditures, that's entirely on the operator's shoulders. You don't have to put up a cent for that. Um, any drilling, either exploration or or you know continuing to drill out the resource, um, you don't have to put up a single cent for that. So that's all on the operator's shoulders. And uh, any hiccups fall um, unevenly on the operator in these in these royalty setups. Um, and then, of course, there's the free perpetual um, option on discoveries, as Pierre Lassonde uh, puts it, um, which basically means that these royalty companies, um, you know, they, they may have, they may initially buy a royalty over a mine life, you know, a mine that's supposed to run 10 to 15 years. But in certain cases, especially if the, the geological setting is right and then there's some luck involved, um, these companies can can you know, buy royalty that ends up paying for 30 or 40 years with, with a, with a new discovery on the larger land package. So this is, this, these are quite a few of the reasons why investors love this model. Um, you know, the, the space has been on absolute fire over the past 18 months. Um, Franco Nevada, as you know, is kind of the bluest of the blue chips for, for royalty names. Um, Franco actually entered the, the 2011, um, mining bear market, um, and then exited it at 20 in 2015 at a higher share price in which it entered. Which was in, which was incredibly impressive, and I think caught the eyes of a lot of investors. Um, and Franco continues to hit fifty or all time highs, you know, basically every week. Um, actually, just today they they hit an all time high as well. Um, you know, the sandstorms and the um, wheat and precious metals of the world are also up over fifty percent um, just just since the beginning of last year. And then you're seeing the, the junior royalty names, you know, the EMXs or the Abitibi royalties, the Metallas. Mavericks, the Ely Golds of the world, um, have more than doubled in some cases um, over over the past uh, 13 or 14 months. So this the space has been very very hot now um, for for 18 months or so, um, if not longer, if if you're looking back in Franco Nevada's um, performance. Um, and in terms of opportunities that this offers, um, there's kind of a couple places I'm looking at. The first is, I think, the disconnect between the precious metal royalty names and the multiples that they get on their cash flow, as well as the NAV multiples. Uh, the disconnect between that and the base and energy metal royalty names, like the uh, Altus, uh, Altius, strateg- um, Altius Minerals or um, Anglo-Pacifics of the world, um, it's, it's too extreme. Uh, I'd say Altius is probably the, the marquee base metal royalty name out there. And Franco Nevada has a, a cash flow multiple that is more than double of, of all DSs. And I don't, I don't think that's I don't think that's sustainable. At the end of the day, cash flow is cash flow, whether it's coming from a copper um, asset or whether it's coming from a gold asset. And so I think, especially amongst the base and energy metal names, we're going to see multiple expansion um, in the years ahead, especially as investors uh, start warming to, to base metals. Um, and additionally, I think there's a wider playing field. There's more royalties available and less competition. So I think in the base metal space, you're probably going to be see uh, better deals on offer than than in the precious metal space. And then just quickly here, because I, I am um, a prospect generator investor as well, 
And you'll see in the investor letter that roughly 20% of our weighted portfolio is exposed to prospect generators. Um, I, I think there is an opportunity for a select few companies that have been, you know, quality prospect generators for years now um, to transition into kind of a, a tried and true royalty company and then get the uh, associated multiples that are attached with that. So there, there are a couple prospect generators that either have uh, a cash flowing royalty or two or will soon have a cash flowing royalty or two. And I think over these next two, three, four, five years, these companies uh, have the opportunity to add another few um, producing royalties, either through acquisitions or through continued organic growth, and kind of make the jump from a prospect generator to a royalty name, which I think in in some of these cases would be very lucrative for for the company's uh, shareholders. So those are the two kind of opportunities I'm looking at, base and energy metal royalties and opportunities for prospect generators to, to make the jump. Um, to a royalty name. You touched on the disconnect between the valuation that a gold royalty company receives versus a base metal royalty company. Uh, what do you attribute that to? Why the disconnect? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. Um, I think there's a certain um, luster to, to precious metals, and, there, and there's always been. So I, I don't think there's an obvious explanation to it. Other than investors that want precious metal exposure um, have found that royalty vehicles are a, a great way to, to do so with a little added leverage um, versus just buying the, the metal directly. And you just haven't seen that in the, in the base and energy metal space yet. So, um, you know, maybe some premium is warranted for, for the precious metal names um, just due to the, the unique circumstances and kind of the, the rabid fan bases that gold and silver has. But I, I just think the current disparity is too extreme and, and can't be easily explained. As you were discussing that, I remember hearing somebody say, we raise money with gold, but we make money with copper. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a, uh, a, a, good, a good quote there, right there. And, uh, and hell, you know, even uh, Mark Bristow is maybe uh, thinking through, the, through the, that lens as well as he mulls adding more, more copper exposure, exposure to Barrick. Um, so I, I do think that as a whole, the industry is a little too focused on, on precious metals. Um, on the TSXV, I, I ran some numbers recently, and you know, 45 to 50% of the juniors are focused on either gold or silver. Whereas if you look at the total um, global mineral production, you know, gold only makes up, we'll say, 15 to 20% of, of the total value. So it does seem like there's a misallocation of capital there. Um, which could be to the advantage of investors that look beyond um, the, the obvious metals. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsor. Arcana Corporation is on the verge of bringing the world's highest grade silver mine into production. The Revenue Virginius Mine in Colorado has proven improbable silver reserves grading nearly 37 ounces per ton silver with an all-in sustaining production cost of only US $8 per ounce of silver. The mine is fully permitted with infrastructure already in place and the company has announced they plan to commence production in 2020. Achieving successful production usually results in a significant up share price re-rating on the Lasan curve. Arcana trades under the ticker AUN in Toronto and AUNFF in New York. To learn more, go to arcana.com. That's A-U-R-C-A-N-A.com. You also invest in uranium. Uh, uranium equities have been pushed down. What's your thoughts on the uranium equities? Are we seeing a bottom here, and what's your outlook? Well, I, I think <laughs> I think it would be foolish to to try to call a bottom at this point. 
Um, this has been a extremely protracted and painful uh, bear market for uranium equities, really since the, the Fukushima uh, disaster in, in Q1 of 2011, and it, it really hasn't abated since. Um, things got particularly ugly um, in late in late January, and kind of the the setup there is that uh, investors were expecting Cameco to make significant um, spot market purchases. Um, in order to fulfill uh, contracts that they have outstanding with utilities. Because as you know, Cameco's uh, shut down MacArthur and uh, is limiting production across a lot of their, their assets and has decided that for the time being, it's better to, to satisfy their contracts through spot market purchases through, than through actual production. And so the market was anticipating a, a boost in the spot price you know, in November and December, and it frankly didn't happen. Now, this is Cameco just deferring these purchases. They will occur in 2020. So I think investors with patience, this was an opportunity. But uranium investors were already so under siege and um, you know close close to the breaking point that I think not seeing that move by the end of the year um, shook a lot of weaker hands out. And so January kind of started on a on a muted note. And uh, share prices of most uranium equities were, were largely range-bound going into the end of the month. Um, however, on, on January 24th, kind of an unexpected development occurred. Um, the managers of the URA um, uranium uh, ETF uh, made the last-minute uh, decision to boost uh, Kazataprom, um, the Kazataprom exposure to 20% of the overall ETF from, from, from effectively zero. And in order to do this, they, of course, had to sell 20% of their assets, um, including some of the other um, uranium juniors that they, they held. Um, and so this created what I'd consider non-fundamental selling pressure, which is, which is always an opportunity. Remember, this, this selling isn't due to any fundamental reason or any fundamental flaws with the companies that are selling. It's purely due to a reallocation decision towards Kazataprom. And so if you look at the, the share prices of, of names like NextGen Energy or, or Denison, um, just look at them on January 24 and then what happened in the five, six, seven trading days afterwards. There was significant selling um, because you know the year started on a muted note anyway, um, and it really hurt and uh, you know took 25, 30% off of the share prices of, of some of these companies. And so, you know, I'd view that largely as a perfect storm. Um, again, I don't think I don't know if this is necessarily uh, the bottom here, and I think it'd be foolish to, to try to predict. But we're, but we're getting closer. And um, you know, anytime I see non-fundamental related selling, that that perks my attention a little bit. And so, you know, there's I'm going to have increased focus on on uranium here here going forward. Um, and then I'll, I'll also note that we do have some uh, clarity from from the Trump administration, um, finally, on what actions uh, they plan to, to take um, in order to, to boost domestic U.S. production. Um, and you probably saw last week um, reports came out that in the upcoming budget, um, Trump plans to um, allocate $150 million per year for the next 10 years in order to uh, establish a strategic uranium uh, stockpile um, within the United States. Of course, they'd be buying that um, from from U.S. Um, uranium producers. Um, I have to note, and I think it's important that this needs to get passed by Congress. And this is a pretty contentious budget as is. I know there's also cuts to, to Medicaid and healthcare, um, along with a, a lot of other services. So, 
it, it remains to be seen whether this is even uh, passed into law. Uh, that said, I think it's helpful to get more clarity here. This has been an extremely painful and drawn out process, first with the Section 232 petition, you know, lasting into July of, ne of last year. You know, then the working group established with recommendations expected within 90 days. Then the working group recommendations delayed into this year. Um, and then but we finally have some clarity on, you know, what what may happen here. Um, I, I think this is largely positive for non-US based uranium assets. And I think the jury's still out. Um, but if you look at the reaction of the US based um, uranium names like Energy Fuels or um, UEC or UR Energy, even in light of this, this recent news um, about the budget, their, their share price reaction has been largely muted. And I think the market potentially um, baked in more extreme intervention from, from the Trump administration. I mean, if, if you run the numbers, $150 million in purchases is about 3% of, of the global uh, of global um, uranium demand on a yearly basis. So it's not insignificant, but it's, it's definitely not a structural shift um, for the market either. Um, and so I think for shareholders or potential investors in non-US based energy equities, this gives them further confidence that um, US intervention isn't going to affect the market all too significantly. And then, of course, for uranium investors everywhere, the, the hope is also that this further clarity will spur utilities to, to step up and uh, start that next contracting cycle uh, now that there's a, a bit more clarity of, of where they should expect to be buying their uranium from. So a lot, lot of moving parts here. I'm reluctant to call to call the bottom. Um, but there's there's been a few positive developments here, especially for the non-U.S. based uranium names. Could you talk about, uh, if you can, uh, any of the qualities you'd want to see in a potential uranium investment or speculation that you would potentially add to your portfolio this year? Like, for example, I just saw Goviex uh, did a raise and they offered a full warrant for five years. And we haven't been seeing many full warrants in five years, especially in the gold space of recent but um, what would incentivize you to take maybe add a new uranium position to the fund? It's, it's a good question. I did see that that Goviex placement. Um, definitely attractive terms. Um, I, I think the way to approach the vast majority of, of uranium names is to wait for placements. Um, and so, you know, no reason to buy on the open market. Um, it's been an extremely painful period for a lot of these um, companies and they need to cash up uh, soon. And so I would wait for the next placement, <clears throat> evaluate the terms, and uh, and and go from there. Um, I think there are very few names that you you should feel comfortable buying on the on the open market um, right now. Um, I, I also feel that it's it's a really tough time for uranium exploration. Um, you know, there's at least one company out there drilling out what looks to be a new a new discovery, but especially if you're drilling wildcat holes and trying to make the next big uranium discovery. Think it's going to be very tough to, to to finance in this market environment. There's already a ton of uh, pounds in the ground out there that are sitting at very cheap valuations that need higher uranium prices in order to incentivize those going into production. I think in a lot of cases it makes more sense for investors to invest in those cheap pound in the grounds than to invest in a grassroots explorer looking for that that next big big discovery. So um, you know if you're going to buy in the open market. Make sure that the company has months, uh, hopefully 12 months, if not longer, of working capital before the next raise with, with milestones to come in between. 
Um, otherwise, even if there's uranium names that you really like management, you like the opportunity, it's probably a good time to just sit on your hands, wait for that next financing, and then move in aggressively there, hopefully getting a, a full or, or half warrant um, as a sweetener. Man, as I was reviewing your allocation by commodity in your fund, uh, you have investments in bauxite, rare earths, vanadiums. Um, you've previously held a graphite position. When it comes to these niche metals that aren't mainstream, can you talk a little bit, what does your due diligence process look like when it comes to these? I would say in short, it's, it's actually not very different from what I would do if I was looking at a copper-focused or a gold-focused name. Um, because at, at the end of the day, um, we're, we're bottom-up investors. Um, and so I, I generally look at the following things uh, in this specific order. Um, first, I'll, I'll look at the people involved. Um, are they honest? Um, are they ethical? Are they experienced? Have they made money for shareholders before? Um, are they well incentivized you know, with, with skin in the game? Um, do they run the company lean and, and put as much money into the ground as possible? That's always the, the first thing I'll look at, whether it's a gold investment or whether it's a molybdenum investment. Um, then I'll look at the, the actual project in, in question. Um, if it's exploration stage, you know, does this have the potential at least to be a world-class or a a tier one project, something that could move the needle for a larger player? Um, if it's, if it's development stage, um, does the project make sense at, at current metal prices? Um, and you know, then I'll move on to the financial structure. Um, does the company have enough working capital, um, to, to advance the project and, and make it through multiple milestones? Is there a bunch of debt sitting on the balance sheet? Is there a warrant overhang? Um, then I'll look for catalysts. You know, what are the p- particular drivers over the next six, twelve, or twenty-four months that could cause a re-rate and a substantial re-rate in the share price? Um, then I look at price to value. Then I look at jurisdiction. Only then, at, at the at the very end, do I do I consider the the actual commodity. Um, and so when I get to that, um, there's there's a few things that I'll, I'll consider. Um, and again, assuming that you know it's a niche energy metal play. And it checks all the previous boxes. Um, I'll first ask, how does this fit into the the current portfolio? Um, maybe we'll already have significant or you know somewhat substantial exposure to that metal. Um, in which case, that makes it probably less likely for me to to be interested um, because I like to kind of hedge hedge commodity uh, price risk and don't want too much exposure, especially to a niche niche metal. However, it's also possible that maybe we have no exposure to that that metal at all, and that could that could pique my my interest. Um, you know, I'll, I'll ask myself: Is this niche metal in the midst of a of a speculative bubble? You know, am I buying lithium in 2016 or? Am I buying cobalt in 2017 or am I buying vanadium in 2018? You know, am I uh, am I getting um, in too late? You know, when you're seeing juniors pivoting into the space, you know, every week and then every few days you see a new company pop up. If, if we're in the midst of a speculative bubble, then, uh, you know, I'm not a trader. I'm not a momentum trader. That's not my game. So I'd, I'd rather steer clear from that metal entirely. Um, and then conversely, you know, has a speculative bubble just just popped? Um, you know, I've, I've learned um, pretty quickly here not to try to catch a falling knife, especially with these with these niche metals. And after the fun is over of a speculative run up, um, I'm, I'm not the one trying to trying to you know pick the bottom when it's when it's on its way down. Um, so you know, the best case scenario for me is that the metal really isn't too hot, um, isn't too cold, and is being largely ignored by you know fellow investors and then also the financial press. So I kind of like. Uh, obscurity um, and um, apathy 
um, if I'm if I'm to to initiate a position in kind of a new niche metal. Um, but again, at, at the end of the day, I'm relatively metal agnostic, um, assuming that I've got the right people, the right project, the right financial structure, et cetera. Um, and I'm, I'm happy for exposure to kind of varied um, metals. Um, and, you know, if these boxes are checked, um, then then I'm willing to to be to be an investor. Trilogy Metals is a world-class developer in Alaska's Ambler Mining District. The company already possesses 8 billion pounds of high-grade copper, 3 billion pounds of zinc, over 1 million gold equivalent ounces, and over 77 million pounds of cobalt. Trilogy's Arctic project boasts an after-tax net present value of $1.4 billion with a 33% internal rate of return. Trilogy is led by an experienced management team with proven success in discovering and developing projects in Alaska. The company is well-capitalized has no debt, and possesses strong institutional support. Trilogy trades in New York and Toronto under the ticker TMQ. To learn more, go to TrilogyMetals.com. That's TrilogyMetals.com. Matt, what's your analysis of Ecuador as a mining jurisdiction? You are invested in Salazar Resources in Ecuador. Um, can you share with listeners your take on Ecuador? Sure. Well, I mean, Ecuador's, I think, an exciting place at the very least to be to be looking at right now. Um, there's an incredible amount of un untapped mineral potential in the country, um, given that the same metallogenic belts that, that run through, you know, Peru and Chile and make both of those countries, you know, global mining heavyweights. Um, they also run through the Ecuador. So it has the same ge geology, but, uh, due to a couple factors, it's seen a, a very, uh, it's seen a fraction of the spend that those two countries have. Um, and the two, two factors are mainly political instability. Um, Ecuador has had 51 uh, presidents, to my count, over the past century, which is which is just insane to think about. So that's obviously not a stable environment that your your average mining company would want to invest in. Um, and then additionally, they really had a stifling mining code for years, where mineral projects were treated the same and taxed the same as oil and gas, and that's that's not sustainable for those of us in this industry. We understand the economics are very different um, between oil and gas projects and, and mining, and, and you can't treat them the same and burden mining projects with 10 or 12 percent royalties. It just doesn't work. Um, but uh, things have really changed over the past five to six years for Ecuador. So I, I would argue that the company is uh, country is on the upswing. Um, you know, in 2014, Ecuador engaged um, consulting firm Wood McKenzie to to revamp uh, the country's mining code, and uh, just a year later, they actually added a standalone mining industry for the very first time in the country's history, and uh, also reformed w what was called the sovereign Ad adjustment tax, which was a which was an onerous tax that was uh, prohibiting um, development. Um, and then, yeah, just just last year, President Moreno, um, who's who's the pro mining Ecuadorian president. Um, abolished the windfall tax and lowered the minimum uh, federal royalty rate from five to uh, percent to three percent. Um, and then, of course, last year was also capped off with uh, first production from Lundin Gold's uh, Fruta del Norte um, in, in November of last year, which I think was a big win for mining country uh, companies across across the country because uh, Lundin was able to prove that they could get that mine up and running. Um, with with minimal issues, both uh, socially and, and environmentally. So I think they've done a very good job being a, a steward of mining um, in, in Ecuador. Um, but of course, you know, th where there's opportunity, there are plenty of risks. 
Um, you know, last year, an issue we saw <clears throat> is that there was a rogue minister within the, the water ministry. And he, in essence, was um, holding up water use permits for drilling across the country um, as, a, as a way to stop um, mining carte blanche. Um, he eventually got pulled out in Q3 and, re- and replaced um, so that that bottleneck has largely been resolved. But that caused 2019 to be a stagnant year for most of the juniors and, and even majors across the country. Um, another issue we, we have is that the mining cadastre. Um, has been closed um, for for over 12 months now, and so no new concessions have been granted over over this period. Um, the good news is that uh, this should change, um, hopefully in in by mid year 2020 or maybe in Q3. And I know there's plenty of companies out there, including uh, Salazar, that are chomping at the bit in order to to stake new ground that they've uh, that they've come across. In, in, in the months since the mining cadastre was closed. So that, that would be a significant um, positive um, for mining in Ecuador. And, and then finally, you know, a point that I think needs to be emphasized is that particularly in Ecuador, um, locals and, ind- and indigenous populations hold a lot of sway, have a lot of power. Um, and so for any given project, I think it's very important to, to analyze the, the social situation there and get a sense of whether the locals and the indigenous um, populations are on side. And if not, or you're unsure whether management has the chops and has what it takes in order to ensure that's the case, because even a phenomenal project can be stopped dead in its tracks if the local community's uh, against it. Um, and so, yeah, all, all that said, I, I do think there's significant opportunity in Ecuador, kind of even taking into account these underlying uh, risks. Um, ultimately, the federal government understands that it needs uh, mining um, F- uh, FDI in order to, to drive the economy and then also to meet uh, commitments that they've, they've made to the, to the IMF in terms of economic growth and, and debt reduction. Um, and so I, again, think it's an exciting place, place to be, but you have to be cognizant of the risks and look at each uh, opportunity on a case-by-case basis. Thanks for sharing your insights on that, Matt. For my last question, I'd like to uh, get your thoughts on what you look for for a developer when they're in that dead spot of the Lasan curve. And what I mean by the dead spot, um, you know, of course, but it's that place after the discovery has been made, it's been defined, the company goes into permitting, doing env- environmental and baseline studies. Uh, there, the risks are there with uh, the environmental issues. Will they get their permit? Where is the capex going to come from? And it's kind of boring. The market doesn't get as excited during this time period. And over the last several years, I've met with a lot of CEOs that lead these type of companies, and I've asked, I always ask them, uh, what, what's the big thing you're looking for this year? And a number of them have just flat out told me, I need a higher copper price. I need a higher gold price. That's my strategy for the year, essentially. Others have told me, you know, I thought I would have been bought out two, three, four years ago, but he's still leading the company. I met with someone at Beaver Creek this last year, and I almost felt sorry for him. He just seems so frustrated that he hasn't been bought out yet. So, Matt, when you're sitting down with with one of these developers in that that dead spot of the Lasan curve before they see that re-rating as they come into production, what are you looking for in a possible investment here? I think that's a, a very good question, Bill. Um, we we are willing to invest in this dead spot as you describe it 
but but it has to be under under the right right conditions. Um, the first is that it obviously um, the right people have to be involved. Um, and when I say the right people in this case, it's preferably those that have already sold a development stage asset before, and so they they have that street cred and, and they have that ability to to go out there and market it and get a quality deal done. Um, and or they've taken a development stage asset into into production. Um, that's probably even a, a better opportunity because that provides more more leverage if a potential acquirer comes in. So pe- the people have to be right. Um, secondly, the economics have to be compelling um, at the spot metal price or lower. That that's just the way I invest. Um, there are investors out there that are optionality investors. They like to bet on directions of metal prices. Um, if you're good at that, that can be a very profitable strategy, but that's just not the way we go about it. So if, if I'm investing in a copper um, you know, project um, that's kind of in this dead spot in the Lausanne curve, I want the project to make a lot of sense at 260, 270 copper, right? And um, when I say a lot of sense, you know, I mean an after-tax NPV, um, using a reasonable discount rate of maybe eight to ten percent, um, that is well above the initial capex, um, well above the initial capex, um, an after-tax IRR that is hopefully north of twenty-five percent, and a payback um, that ideally is is three years or less. So those are pretty high bars in terms of economic numbers, and I think if you're willing to stick with a company through this boring and uh, stage it has to be worth it. Um, you, you can't just be praying for, for higher metal prices. Um, another thing I look for, the, the company must have enough cash uh, in the bank in order to get through their next milestone. Um, you know Whether that next milestone is a, is a feasibility study or a pre-feasibility study, or whether it's an important permit, you know, whether that's an environmental permit or the final mining permit, you want them to be cashed up. Um, if, if you don't think that they have cash to reach that next major milestone, even if you like the opportunity, it, it makes much more sense to just, just, just sit on your hands and wait for the, the inevitable private placement and then get a discount to market and or warrant. So the, the company absolutely has to be, uh, cashed up. And then of course, better still is if the company has enough, enough cash in the bank to make it all the way through construction financing before they have to dilute again. That's a strong position of, of strength where the company says, you know, well, we, we've got a feasibility coming study coming out here in six months and a mining permit six months after that. We have two and a half years of cash. So, you know, we're not going to raise again until the actual construction financing package comes. That's that's a real position of strength. That's something that would maybe get me over the finish line for, for something in, in the dead zone. Um, and, and then and then finally, I would say I want I do want to see a large disconnect between the company's valuation and where I think it should be valued on a risk adjusted uh, NPV basis. Um, so, you know, generally I think uh, pre fees, um, PFS stage projects um, should be valued at around 20% of the after tax NPV. Um, and feasibility stage projects should be valued at around 30% of the after uh, tax NPV. Um, for in exceptional cases, these multiples can be, can be much, much higher, but it has to be phenomenal economics in order to deviate from there. But you know, I, I want to see a company valued at a substantial discount to where I think it should be based off of its NPV and the project stage. Um, otherwise, if I don't see that value, even if I think the project's going to be built, um, if I, if I think it's fairly valued, um, I'd rather I'd rather um, pass and and look at look at other opportunities where I think I can get in. Um, you know, cheap. You've been listening to managing partner Matt Geiger of the MJG Capital Fund. You can follow Matt on Twitter at 
Geiger Counting, at Geiger Counting. Website again is mjgcapital.com. Go over there, sign up for the newsletter. Uh, Matt sends out his newsletter to his email list. So um, this newsletter that I've been asking him questions about, you can get emailed to your inbox if you go there and sign up for his list. Matt, I really appreciate you coming on the show again and uh, sharing with us your insights. Thank you for joining me today. Yep, thanks for having me, Bill. Chat soon. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty dollars or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks concomitant with that if you don't do the work or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too i just started to study up on mining stocks and i just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly the mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.